0: Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's good to see everyone here in the Faith and Arts Center, along with those who are joining us online. Two weeks ago, I introduced you to Bishop Robert Schnees, who wrote a book in 2007 that was entitled Five Practices of Faithful Congregations. The bishop identified a handful of principles that growing churches embrace. They include things like radical hospitality, Passionate worship, intentional discipleship, risk-taking mission and service, and extravagant generosity. During our fall stewardship emphasis, we're asking the question, what does it look like to be a people of extravagant generosity? Reverend Sarah introduced our scripture lesson for the day. It comes from Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 17, as you're able... I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. "'Good teacher,' he asked. "'What must I do to inherit eternal life?' "'Why do you call me good?' Jesus answered. "'No one is good except God alone. "'You know the commandments. "'You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, "'you shall not give false witness, you shall not defraud, "'honor your father and mother.'" Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. would you please be seated. A news report introduced me to a young woman named Hannah Salwin back in 2006. Her story disturbed me. She seemed like a typical 14 year old, but don't let her youth fool you. She was a troublemaker and an agitator. Hannah attended the Atlanta Girls' School just down the road, and her family lived in Ansley Park. One day, she watched a Mercedes-Benz Coupe stop at a traffic light, and on the corner next to it was standing a homeless man. She turned to her father and said, if that man chose to drive a less nice car, that man could have a meal. And it was a genesis of a conversation within their family about the differences between wants and needs. The family lived in a 1912 mansion near Piedmont Park, 6,500 square feet, five bedrooms, eight fireplaces, and at the time, the market value was about $1.8 million. It was Hannah's mother who originally proposed the idea of selling the house, downsizing, and giving half to a charity. And eventually, that's exactly what they decided to do. And they gave $850,000 to the Hunger Project in Ghana, Africa, which served 30,000 people in 30 villages to help alleviate hunger and to promote a self-serving lifestyle. Hannah and her family eventually published a book in 2010 that chronicled their journey. And it was entitled, The Power of Half. And Hannah in an interview said, it's really not a giving book. It's a relationships book because it brought our family closer together. I read several book reviews online at the time it was published. The majority were quite positive, praising the family for their altruism and their generosity. Others said, it's a great example, but it's impractical for almost everyone. And a few cynics accused the family of being self-promoting and braggadocious. My favorite review was by one man who said, I love the book, but I would dare not leave it laying around my house. I'm afraid the children would read it, and they would begin to get some ideas. I don't know about you, but for me, the Salwin story challenges my preconceptions about lifestyle and how we're called to live. I'm not suggesting that all of us are called to leave today, put our houses on the market, and give 50% to charity. It was a unique situation at a particular time and place. And for the Sowans, this is where they felt God's call upon their lives. But it is an invitation for us to re-examine the difference between wants and needs. Because like I said, Hannah Sowin was a troubled girl. She was troubled by poverty and by homelessness. And she was a troublemaker and an agitator that helps us to consider what it means to be a people of financial faithfulness and of extravagant generosity. I've shared with you before that one of my favorite games growing up was the game of life. Most of us have probably played it before. It was published by Milton Bradley decades ago. And you start the game, you get a little plastic car that you drive around the board and you spin and determine how many spaces you move. And along the way, you have to choose between a career or a college path. And you can elect to have a spouse ride beside you and some pink or blue-pegged children. And you collect paydays and you buy insurance. And eventually, at the end of the game, you arrive at Milton Bradley's version of heaven or hell. Heaven is millionaire estates. Hell is Countryside estates, which in a less politically correct time when I played it as a child, was called the poor farm. And the winner is the person with the most money. Milton Bradley had a keen insight into human nature. We are carnal creatures living in a fallen world, and we naturally gravitate to what entices and engages our five senses. And because of that, it is the next natural step for us to begin to equate success as financial success. And we buy into this materialistic promise that the more you get, the happier you will be. Every parent, every grandparent here has had this experience. Your child or grandchild comes up to you and says, I need fill in the blank, a new teddy bear, a new doll, a new gaming system, a new cell phone, a new car, and if I get that, I will never, ever want anything ever again, ever. My granddaughter is now four and a half years old, and if Hazely comes to me and says, Pops, I need, odds are real good she's going to get But you know, the next step in the progression, the new eventually wears off and the child discovers not only they can, but they do want something else. And it's not just children and it's not just teenagers, it's also adults. We all want just a little bit more. I came across an interesting statistic in preparing for uh, the sermon. According to the National Association of Home Builders, The average, the median size of an American home in 1970 was 1,400 square feet, a relatively modest home. In 2020, that number had increased 62% to 2,261 square feet. The constant desire for more. Sociologists talk about the normalization of next I think back just years ago, things that I didn't even dream to have, or maybe they were extravagant luxuries are now necessities. We have to have high speed internet. How can anybody survive without at least a gig of internet speed? We have to have the latest cell phone that has more computing power than the Apollo space flights. We have to have the latest entertainment apps. We have to have 200 channels on TV even though we only watch a handful of them. All of these necessities that we have to have. And occasionally someone like Hannah Salwin reminds us that the most important things in life are not things. And we constantly have to battle about this difference between wants and needs, and along the way we are called to redefine our needs in order to be more the people that God has called us to be. Over the past two years, our country and our world has gone through a series of crises. And I firmly believe that every crisis is also an opportunity. We went through the global pandemic and people had to reassess what were their priorities, what were important. Now we're going through an economic meltdown, and people are reevaluating how they use the material possessions that they have. And for many people, the answer has been to cut back and to simplify. God wants to do something new in our lives. But for God to do something new in our lives, that means we've got to let go of something old. I am personally not a fan of yard sales, despise them. I think they ought to be called junk exchanges instead. I don't like to go to them. I don't like to host them. The last one we did was in 2000 when we moved from West Point, Georgia, and I swore never again. I'd much rather donate it to the Salvation Army than try to sell it for pennies on the dollar. But part of what I've observed over the years is that every couple, and if you were here with your spouse today today... Y'all can have this conversation after church, whether it's true or not. Every couple has a keeper and a thrower-awayer. I am not the keeper in my family. And I have visions of just getting rid of all this stuff. And that when I open my closet, the clothes are hanging where they don't touch each other. And you open the drawer and there's room inside the drawer to put something else And you open the pantry and everything you've got to cook a meal is readily evident. But you know the issue. Nature abhors a vacuum. And we may get rid of stuff, but then we get more stuff. And it may be new stuff, but it is still stuff. And there's some things God needs to purge from our life so that the Lord can do something new. Today we are revisiting the story of the rich young ruler. I introduced it two weeks ago, but I want to look at it again today. Uh, this title of the story is a compilation of the gospel accounts. One account tells us he was young. Another tells us he was a ruler or a leader in the synagogue. All agree he was rich. And we've heard the story. One day he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I may exegete this particular verse to the breaking point, but that word inherit intrigues me. Because if you're going to inherit, it means somebody's got to die, and of course we know how the story will continue of Jesus giving his life for us, but also in the story he is calling this young man to die to self, to the old way of life so that resurrection and new life can occur. So what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus quickly lists some of the commandments, And the young man says, I've done all those since I was young. And don't you love that detail that Jesus looks at him and loves him? Wants the best for him? So he says, one thing you lack, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Be one of my apostles. Be one of the inner circle. Journey with me into God's future. And the man turns away very sad because he has great wealth. And between Jesus and his possessions, he chose his possessions instead. And I have, over the past couple of weeks, replayed that scene in my own mind, imagining standing before Jesus and hearing him say, there's one thing you lack. That's been my experience in my spiritual journey. That Christian perfection, going on to be more who God created me to be, of declaring Jesus not only Savior, not only Lord, is a progression of those conversations. That there are constantly things I need to give up to God. And for every person here today, that may well be something different at this particular moment in your life. Sometimes it is our finances, and we need to give those up to God. Sometimes it's relationships or habits or addictions or worries or anxieties. God meets us where we are and identifies that critical piece we need to give to God Next. But in our materialistic world, what I discover over and again is oftentimes it is our infatuation with this fallen world and that we're wanting to invest in a company that has declared that it is going bankrupt. And I've become more and more convinced, and you've heard me talk about this for five years now, that financial faithfulness is a critical part of Christian discipleship and that when you free people up to give you free them up to receive God's grace in order for God's grace to flow through them even more. And I think there are reasons why people struggle in this area. The first is, the church has not been very good at doing education about financial faithfulness. And the reason is, it is very uncomfortable to stand up here and talk about money. Martin Luther said, every Christian must undergo three conversions of the head, of the heart, And the third one is of the wallet. And even in traditions that practice full immersion baptisms, if you look very closely, you'll see one hand sticking above the surface, keeping their wallet safe and dry. And we need to talk about the importance of money because it is the token of our lives. Others are struggling with materialism. Uh, Jim stole part of my sermon this morning when he talked about the lifestyle choices that we make. If we can afford a bigger home and luxury cars and nice restaurants and school uh, tuitions and country club dues, those choices may well mean there's nothing left to give to the church and to God. A third reason is that oftentimes people pay God last. Last. One of the disciplines Tracy and I undertook years ago is the first check we write of the month is to the church. And we still write a check. For us, that, that physical manifestation of what we're giving is important to us. And when our children were younger, it was important for us to have them see us putting something in the offering plate. But if you wait to pay God last, there'll never be enough. There was a video years ago that came out. It's so dated now, I wouldn't use it, but I love the concept. The title of it was God's Pie. And it opens up and there's this line of tables with people sitting behind them. And in front of each person, there's a placard representing a different reality. And in the center of the table, there's this man with this wonderful, enormous, delicious pie. And it represents the finances of his life. And he starts slicing it up. And the biggest slice goes to his first mortgage. And then another slice to the second mortgage. And the first car payment and the second car payment. It goes all the way down the line. And finally, he has this little sliver left for himself. And he's just about to eat it. And he realizes everybody's staring at him. And he looks to his other side. And there sits God. And one of the persons down the table leans over and says, Dude. He brought the pie and the man just thinks about it for a moment, turns his back on God and gobbles it up. And that video both made me laugh and made me cringe every time I saw it. See our finances are tokens of the entirety of our lives and how we use our finances where our treasure is, there our heart will be also rest of our lives naturally follow. And we're called to give the first and the best to God. Exodus 34 verse 26 says, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. If you've had the opportunity to read the Old Testament, there are entire sections, there are chapter after chapter after chapter that define what an acceptable sacrifice to God is. And part of the priest's duty the unglamorous part of ministry, was they had to examine every sacrifice, every lamb, every pigeon, everything that came through to make sure that it was unblemished and suitable for an offering for God. Why? God owns all of creation. The cattle on 10,000 hills are God's. Why does it matter to God that it's the first and the best? It matters to God because it matters to us. And when you give your first and best to God, that is representative of the entirety of your life. You give your last and your least to God, it also reflects where we are in our spiritual pilgrimage. So this morning I invite you to a simple spiritual financial exercise, and I do this every year with the congregation. My first question is where are we in terms of financial faithfulness? Where are we in terms of dollar amount, of percentage, of joy and excitement and giving? The way I read Scripture, the standard is we're called to give a tithe or 10% of our income back to God. Where are you in that pursuit? Secondly, where do you believe God wants you to be? For some, tithing may be a brand new concept. For others, it is a a goal towards which you are moving. For others, you may have been so blessed by God that a tithe does not begin to be an adequate response to how God has blessed your life. And then the third simple question is, how do you get from here to there? From where you are to where God is calling you to be. I'll say again that Hannah Salwin's story continues to trouble me because she was a troubled girl troubled by poverty and by homelessness. And she was a troublemaker and an agitator because her example calls all of us to re-examine our lifestyles and whether we have confused wants with needs. We may play the game of life, but life is not a game. And at the end of our days, we are called to have invested our lives in the things that last, And not the things that pass away. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 11 declares you will be enriched in every way for your great generosity. Let us respond to a God of extravagant generosity with extravagant generosity of our own. Let us pray. Gracious and Almighty God, We look about us and we are overwhelmed by your spendthrift, prodigal nature that has given us everything. And you call us in response to give back to you as a physical, concrete, incarnate token of our devotion. Whatever we give is emblematic of serving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We thank you for your grace and blessings in our lives teach us how to respond. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.